You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 5, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. If you're a first-time listener, thank you so much for joining in. I think you'll find this a great, uh, informative show. And if you're a repeat listener, I want to really thank you for coming back and for recommending the show. Clearly, it's having a big impact on people because it's being shared a lot. As I've noticed, the downloads have changed, have gone up significantly over the past week or so. After only a couple of weeks on on the air, I guess, is that what the podcast is? Uh, it's been It's been much more successful than I could ever have anticipated. So, Thank you so much for that. I want to send a special thank you and shout out to Nicholas and Lucas who signed up on Patreon.com to help support the show. The link is Patreon.com slash The Paradox. There you can sign up to be a supporting listener. Uh, There's some special bonuses and there'll be more added as more people sign up. Every dollar that is raised there goes to the promotion and production of the show and improvement of the show. So Thanks again to you guys. I appreciate it that you value this work. Just know that it means a lot to me that you support what I'm doing. So today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Mary Mass. She's a pediatrician who works in Philadelphia. She's been working on this for over a year. And what we're going to try and get to the bottom of some a subject that is super important to everybody in this country, whether they know it or not. If you're a physician, you have dealt with medication and supply shortages. Uh, it may strike people as surprising that we have a healthcare system which costs as much as it does, yet lacks basic supplies. I sometimes joke that we need to get a, a mission from some other country in Africa to come and bring us supplies because we lack basic supplies oftentimes. We have shortages uh, ranging the hundreds of medications. Uh, some of them are very important as far as basic IV solutions. Sometimes they're chemotherapeutic agents, anesthetics, all sorts of things. So Dr. Mass is an advocate for ending the safe harbor law, which is, she'll talk about from 1987, 
and to combat the group purchasing organizations and pharmaceutical benefit managers. Weird terms, weird acronyms, but it's going to make a lot more sense in the show. And I think you'll probably be outraged like I was and definitely concerned. But hopefully you'll be left with some hope and some course of action that whether you're a physician or just someone concerned about family member or your own health, you'll be the smartest person on the block. You'll understand this issue and you'll be able to explain to people what's wrong and how we can fix it. Enjoy the episode. So I'd like to welcome my guest today, uh, the incredibly busy Dr. Marion Mass, who is out in Philadelphia, is that correct, or the Philadelphia area? You're pediatrician at CHOP, is that correct? I am, but I, I never speak for CHOP, and I have to make that correct. complete. Right. And I'm a clinical assistant physician uh, professor at the Michigan State University, and I absolutely do not speak for Michigan State University. Uh, I'm just a guy who does anesthesia uh, in Grand Rapids. Uh, so <clears throat> today we're going to have, a, I think, a really super interesting topic. So I'll start preface it by just give you a little bit of my experience. So people who have an idea, now if you're a physician, you probably have some vague idea, depending on what your specialty is, that there's a shortage of drugs in this country. And by drugs, I don't mean heroin. I'm talking about medications, uh, blood pressure medicines, anesthetics, and basic supplies. And it's really frustrating in a market economy that doesn't seem to be short of anything. I go down the aisle at uh, for toothpaste and there's never a shortage of you know Aquafresh or something. There's always plenty of toothpaste. I've never once been down in, down in the grocery store and have just aisles empty. Uh, it's not like Venezuela or something like that. We have a very robust, super complicated, very um, a great market where we have all these products that we need. And so it's very strange that we have basic supplies. And by basic, I mean like normal saline, which is your typical IV fluid, that we get these sh- sudden shortages in this country, which is bizarre, right? These are the most basic things you can produce. So recently, in the last five years, I've experienced shortages in propofol, which if you're an anesthesiologist, you perform 99.9% of your anesthetics to put someone to sleep or to maintain sedation with propofol. And we didn't have any, or we had very limited surprise. I was getting some from Europe. I couldn't even read the label because it was like in Cyrillic or you know Romanian or something like that. Um, and then uh, recently, we've had significant shortages in local anesthetics. These are drugs we use to numb someone's arm up or something like that. And we can't get basic supplies for like spinals. So to do it, we have to change the way we do our do anesthetics, probably do them in a way that's not as, hmm, probably not, I wouldn't say not as safe, but maybe the outcomes aren't quite as good. And certainly from a pain control standpoint, they're not quite as good. By not doing spinals, we have to do general anesthetics. Or we have a limitation in the amount of pain medications we have access to. Basic things that have been, medications have been on the market for years and years and years, long before I ever started practicing. These are all very puzzling. I think it's a lot like if you imagine going to the grocery store and you wanted to make a great tossed salad and all you could find was kale, which, you know, you might want to just shoot yourself in the head if all you have, could eat is kale. But there's, you could, sure, you could make just kale, but it's not going to be the same. It's, it's not going to be as pleasant. And so the question everyone wants to know in medicine, we come with lots of sort of excuses, but is why are we having this problem? You're somewhat of an expert in this or have a an idea for what's causing these shortages in drugs, because these are fairly simple things to produce. If you're if you have a chemistry background, and you have these large pharmaceutical, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies in this country. So why don't we have these basic supplies in medicine? Oh, it, it, fantastic question. So, like, I just want to restate it, just so in a way that people understand. So, if we don't have 
uh, sodium bicarb solution, baking soda water. If we don't have normal saline solution, salt water. If we don't have simple generics that have been around for decades, there must be something wrong with the whole scenario. And when you, whenever you look at a, an issue, you have to go back and look through history. And I have to take you back through history. Is it okay that I do that? I love history lessons. As long as we're not going back into the pre-industrial era, we're good. No, no, no. That's okay. So let's go back into um, the early 19-teens when there were um, groups that formed called Group Purchasing Organizations, GPOs. And these organizations worked like co-ops for decades on end and worked with hospitals and nursing homes and any institution that needed to buy medical supplies. And what they were supposed to do was be able to negotiate on behalf of these institutions and make the supplies cost less money. So let's like have that as like the basic backbone. These organizations were were started so that institutions would have to pay less money overall for product. And so when these organizations formed, they worked as co-ops and they did that for decades on end. So they worked with hospitals, nursing homes, and any other group that needed medications, solutions, bedpans, sheets, oxygen tubing, devices, all of those things worked through this institutional supply line called the Group Purchasing Organization. In 1987, people decided things needed to change. And the Group Purchasing Organizations got together with, I believe, the American Hospital Association, which is one of the biggest lobbies in the United States. Everyone says it's the NRA, but they're not even in the top 25 when you look at money. But the American Hospital Association is. Shocking, right? <laughs> not, not for me, but I, but most people will not know that, yes. No, well, of course not. So go look up the top lobby groups in America. If you go into a group called or, or a website called Open Secrets, you can figure that out. So um, the group purchasing organizations got together with the American Hospital Association, and they lobbied hard on Congress. And as part of the Medicare Patient Protection Act of 1987, there was a small statute placed in there called the Safe Harbor Act for GPOs. And the Safe Harbor Act gave group purchasing organizations who were supposed to be getting paid by hospitals to negotiate the hospital supply chain. It gave them a legalized safe harbor for kickbacks. So in other words, if they accepted kickbacks, they weren't prosecuted like every other industry in America was. If this isn't sounding concerning to you already, wait until you hear the rest of the story. So um, now this institution that currently controls 90% of the entire institutional supply chain, that's the, the supply chain for all of the hospitals and all of the nursing homes in all of America, 90% of the supply chain is controlled by the group purchasing organizations. So this group has legalized kickbacks. They have a, as my friend Phil Zweig, who is a journalist who just wrote an article this morning in the Wall Street Journal. If you read the Wall Street Journal, it is the very last page, the bottom section, but it's discussing how um, hospitals have the, uh, the right to legalize kickbacks. And uh, if you have trouble, we'll, we'll get you the link for later. 
But so group purchasing organizations were then granted this legalized kickback right. Mm -hmm. And after several years, the outpatient pharmaceuticals, they're called the pharmaceutical benefit managers, that group of industry, and there's four GPOs, four big GPOs, and three big PBMs, pharmaceutical benefit managers. So now they're all granted the right to legalize kickbacks. And then the party begins in earnest. Oh, okay. So I'm so I'm just going to go back up a tiny bit. So I think from a historical perspective, it's probably important to recognize that hospitals did not look like it in the 1920s, did not look like they do today. So if, you, if you're a hospital in a, say, I'm going to use Grand Rapids, which is where I'm living right now, there were a couple hospitals in town, but they were not part of large health networks. They were mostly cha- uh, non, truly nonprofit charitable organizations that some concerned citizens raised money to put the hospital together. So these are not hospitals with large administrations. They're not the, their ability to uh, negotiate with any sort of company for large discounts just didn't exist, right? These are kind of like a couple docs who are running this this hospital and just trying to keep people alive, right? So these sort of organizations were critical for them to maintain costs to, to keep costs low for supplies, right? Is that with that you say that's pretty accurate? Yes, yes. Until, until the late 1980s, because like right. know, the hospitals were kind of like counting on them. Like they, they worked like big co-ops, you know, like you would go into a Costco sure. and you'd get better. So and there and there's not just one GPO, yeah. right? So you mentioned there there are like three or four, correct? So four of these organizations control there's control the entire uh, basically the yeah. entire market. Ninety percent of the entire hospital supply chain: Premier, Intellari, Visient, Visient. And Health Trust. Health Trust. That's a good name, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just like Patriot Act, right? Um, so, uh, so then these organizations are there to save the hospital's money at, at some well, right. I mean, that's why they're originally, and that's probably why they're successful. So, I mean, they didn't exist throughout the 50s and 60s because they were costing the hospital's money, right? I mean, they were probably, they're probably finding ways of getting group discounts for products, right? I mean, that was why they, they existed. They were saving money for a yeah. very long time. And then time. things changed, right? So now the the incentives change for these GPOs. And so at that point, your contention is with this change within the, the commercial change in that, that law, that now people had to, as people, and I say people, I mean pharmaceutical companies that, that are making drugs, now have to pay to participate with these organizations. Is that correct? Correct. It becomes a pay-to-play market. And it's not just pharmaceutical companies in terms of the hospital mm-hmm. supply chain, it's also the devices. So if you picture like every single medical device, you know, like a mesh that happens in your hernia surgery, um, a device that gets put into your cardiac surgery, a pacemaker, um, a, an orthopedic device, all of those devices as well. And in addition into, into the entire hospital supply chain, you know, your bedpans, your oxygen tubing, and your solutions, normal saline solution, bicarbonate solution, baking soda water, and normal saline solution water, those things that are used to rehydrate you. Or if you have um, bad kidney disease, which is disproportionately affected uh, by the African-American population, uh, the what you need when you uh, get dialysis, all of those medications and solutions are now controlled by the GPOs with a pay-to-play scenario, whereby if you want to get into the market, you have to pay the GPO to get in. Right. And so if I am um, if I make aspirin and I want to try and get in the market to because it's a generic drug, I need to pay a GPO 
$3 million or whatever to have access to their market and their market is, or these, whatever, how many GPOs to get, to basically get my product into a hospital, I have to go through these GPOs. Is that, is that true? So yes, that is true. So for 90% of the market, you have to deal with the GPOs for the hospital supply chain or the industrial supply chain in nursing homes as well. And for the outpatient supply market, that's controlled by the pharmaceutical benefit managers, the PBMs. There's three ones that are big there, CVS, Caremark, um, Optum, and uh, Express Scripts. And those three big PBMs control 70% of the outpatient market. And if you, you, you're you an outpatient market, like you just mentioned, the, the product that you mentioned, you need to pay the PBMs to get in. Um, as exa- an example, let's use insulin. So insulin, there are 12 manufacturers in the United States. And three of them have preferred contracts through the, the pharmaceutical benefit managers. So insulin is currently costing most patients roughly $400 a month. And with the, uh, when you look at the whole cost of that $400 a month, roughly 300 of those dollars go to the pay-to-play scheme. And, you know, we call them the, you know, the kickbacks. But the pharmaceutical benefit managers, they don't call them kickbacks. They call them rebates. <laughs> They're not telling the patients the rebates aren't going to them. The rebates are going to either the PBMs or the insurance companies. And they they use the term rebates. They use it whether they're talking about insulin or they're talking about EpiPens or whatever they're talking about. But 300 of the $400 per month spent on insulin, which is a life-sustaining medication, and disproportionately affecting the um, – the African-American community in the United States, 300 out of $400 is coming right from the kickbacks, the pay-to-play scheme. Now, it's a problem because there's only three manufacturers of insulin and they're all jockeying for more money all the time. So probably behind the scenes, and there's no transparency here, right? No one's telling anyone what's happening. Behind the scenes, these three companies are probably trying to outbid each other and get more and more of the market share. And then there's nine other companies that are making insulin and they can't even get into the market because they can't afford what the three companies are paying. So let's just say that we didn't have kickbacks. If we didn't have kickbacks, 300 out of $400 would go away and insulin would cost $100 a month instead of 400. And then if we didn't have kickbacks, instead of three companies producing, we'd have 12 companies producing. So probably insulin would cost, I'm just guessing, but maybe $40 a month instead of $400 a month. Well, that's a significant savings, isn't it? Well, I mean, clearly, I I guess, you know, so my my problem with this whole, well, I guess to, to go further then. So if, if the scenario you're painting here is one that we have basically a market that only has a few. Not only does it have a few people who can distribute the medications, but because there are only a few maker uh, producers that can produce drugs at a margin adequate to make money on generics, which you know they always cry that they can't make any money with generics. Um, that you have very few. Since you have very few people producing, then you get the weird sort of things that happen in this market, right? Like there's a hurricane, and suddenly we have no no, you know, muscle accidents or something like that. Whereas normally, if if a hurricane hit Louisiana. 
you know, you have 18 other plants producing whatever it is, right? And so it's not, you're not going to have major production error problems or uh, acquisition problems of, of medications. But since you have, since of this sort of artificial monopoly that's been created through uh, these kickbacks, that, that it creates a very, very um, fragile market that, ordin- that under normal market conditions wouldn't exist. Is that, is, is that correct? Oh, wow. You are so completely right on board, Eric. So you're, uh, you're right. So uh, normal saline, the only place on United States soil where it's manufactured is Baxter in Puerto Rico. And we all know about the big hurricane that hit there in the fall. And so when the hurricane hit there in the fall, it messed up our production of normal saline, which is salt water, which is the most essential thing you need if anyone's dehydrated. And when we had our big flu crisis that happened all winter long, there were major hospitals that didn't have enough normal saline. So instead they were walking up to patients and saying, here, please, we are so sorry. We can't put an IV into you and rehydrate you, even though you're almost dying. So let us give you this Gatorade instead. That's pathetic. This is like Venezuelan market. And you're a hundred percent right that you, someone should have been asking the question, not, oh dear, why is the hurricane causing this problem? Because you can't help a hurricane. Someone should have been asking the question, why is there only one place in the United States soil where, where we are manufacturing normal sailing? Because the truth of the matter is, is that years before there were multiple places, but now there's only one. And the reason there's only one is because you have to pay to play to get into the market. And furthermore, when you have to pay to play to get into the market and you make only one place that's manufacturing saline like Baxter, now you're charging, I believe it's $543 a bag for normal saline, which should cost approximately $10 per bag. And that's not even including the cost that it takes to administer the normal saline. Well, that's really pathetic. Yeah, And it's not just normal saline, it's you know, bicarbonate solution. And yeah. there's approximately 150 drugs or solutions that are in short supply right now. I mean, there are medications, like I mentioned before, local anesthetics that we use for nerve blocks that people have been using for almost 100 years. <laughs> these are like, these are the medicines we were using before we hardly had general anesthesia. And it's not available, right? And it's not like these are complicated. And I mean, anybody, and I mean, anybody listen to this, if I told you how much sodium chloride or salt to add to water, you could make salt water. It's not like we're talking about complicated chemistry here. You did this in sixth grade in chemistry. Like, uh, no, it's not. Right? And you know, what's really pathetic is that like if you go back and you look through the FDA, and we can prove this, there are fewer applications for FDA. Um, there are fewer FDA applications that people are applying so that they can make salt water or drugs or whatever it is. So people aren't even trying because they know that the PBOs or the PBMs and the GPOs are running everything. So we're shutting down manufacturing in our country. You know, we're in the middle of an opioid crisis where we all talk about how people don't have jobs and that's part of the problem. And maybe this is what's like driving them to, you know, uh, to be depressed and anxious and worried that they don't have good jobs. And yet we're shutting down manufacturing in our country. We're taking, we're taking our generic manufacturing and we're prohibiting it right? because it's so costly to do it. So in addition to us making these artificial shortages, and as soon as you, you take a product and you move it down to where only one manufacturer is making it, 
Well, when you're the only manufacturer making it, what are you going to charge? As much as they'll pay. The lowest price. The, as much as people pay for it. That's of a rational course. thing you to do. You want to talk about epinephrine? Yeah. Sure. You want to talk about EpiPen? Right. <laughs> or, or some chemotherapeutic <laughs> agents, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things. And, and you know, and, and it, it, from a market standpoint, so I'm for libertarian. And so if you look at it and you say, well, you know, you're jacking up prices, that's wrong. Well, it's not really. I mean, that's the, that is an appropriate market response for a shortage of something. And so the only the people who absolutely need something will pay that cost to get it. But it also encourages other people to enter the market, right? So, you know, there's suddenly a hurricane, everybody needs plywood. Well, you're not going to just sell plywood for a dollar a sheet anymore. I know it's more than that, but you're going to sell for $30 a sheet because you want to make sure people don't just board up like, you know, their shed windows. They're only using the windows they really need to protect, right? And so the, the market, the, the jacking up of prices is absolutely an essential market signal of scarcity. But right now, the, the problem does not seem like a normal market problem as much as it is it's artificial scarcity that, that is being caused by this process. Would you agree that's an accurate assessment? Oh, absolutely. No, no, absolutely. And I think people don't understand how, how it could personally affect them. Oh, right. I mean, so when you start following all this and you read like what the shortages are and you realize that there's chemotherapeutics that you just can't even get your hands on. Yeah. And that if you go look up children's oncology group rationing pharmaceuticals, what you'll understand is, is that for kids who have cancer, the children's oncology group is trying to figure out, well, how can we ration these medications? Because we just don't have enough of them. Yeah. Dear God, why isn't the children's oncology group going and trying to figure out why they don't have them? I mean, that's insane. Right. And you know, there's, and you brought up anesthetics. I mean, so let's just say that you are pregnant or you have a, um, a, a child that's about to deliver and you're about to be a grandparent and your son or daughter is about to deliver and they go to the operating room. Well, no one wants to go under general anesthesia, but if there's no spinal tray, you certainly might have to because there's a shortage of spinal trays. There's yeah. a shortage of anesthetics. So maybe you can't get the local anesthesia that you need and you're going to go under general, which is a danger in this case of a pregnant woman to the mother, to the fetus, to everyone. And I mean, I hate to bring up money because it's just like so gross, but it's going to cost more for everyone when you have to go under general anesthesia instead of local, you know? Right. Well, and disgusting. And, you know, it, the same thing with the local anesthetics are missing. Guess where are they also missing? Labor epidurals, right? Who wants to go through labor without a labor epidural if you don't have to? Uh, and you know, frankly, that's the only time people are happy to see me. So usually, they see me, they think of nausea. So I, I'm really upset if I don't have. I loved my I know. Oh, I've yet to get anyone name their child after me. I keep hoping. I once had an Erica, which I kind of counted, but that turns out that was the name they had picked out ahead of time. I'm still going to count as a victory personally. Um, so, <laughs> if it makes you feel better, my third child is named Eric. You know. Well, there you go. There aren't a whole lot of us around. We're kind of now all about middle age. Anesthesiologist asked me to name him after him, and I was like, "Well, I like you a lot." But <laughs> well, the joke is my I, so my partners Ron. Uh, we are having our third child here in Grand Rapids. Didn't know if it was a boy or girl. Our two names are Peter and Molly. Turns out my two partners were named Peter and Molly, who were on call that night. A Peter put the epidural in, and we had and we had a boy, so he's Peter. Uh, so I always joke that see, so you have to name your kid after the anesthesiologist yeah. on call. Uh, so. Uh, so getting back to the group purchasing organizations, what we have here is artificial scarcity caused by this, by this kickback scheme. So my question is, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I, can, I can produce normal saline, let's see. Let's say I've got a pharmaceutical plant or something. I've got a couple of chemists, and I say, I can make normal saline. 
and I can sell it. They're selling for $60 a bag. I can sell it. I can get the FDA approval. I can sell it for 15 and I can still have a margin on that. What prevents me from getting access to, say, Mayo Hospital Systems or Cleveland Clinic? or I mean, are they prohibited from, from purchasing outside the repurchasing organization? Because I don't understand why other companies can't can't go in there. There's not a market opportunity, you know what I mean, to to get in there and undersell the people. There, these I'll use the term discounts in air quotes. <laughs> discounts are offered by the GPOs, right? Clearly, there's there's opportunity for people to get in this market. Why are they? How are they being prevented from getting in? Well, um, so first of all, um, you know, for the most part, when the when the group purchasing organizations and all of this is veiled, okay? Yes, this is like secrecy. And I will tell you that 60 Minutes, and everyone knows 60 Minutes, right? They just uh, ran a teaser piece the other night on Sunday, and they have more to come. But the um, the manufacturers who work with the group purchasing organizations, and l- let me just actually take this time to mention, the group purchasing organizations don't do any manufacturing. They don't even distribute the product because there's distributors who do that. They don't do any research and development. All they do is write contracts. One might ask what they're busy doing other than writing contracts. It's like some kind of Venezuelan. I ask that of my hospital administration all the time, but I don't get an answer back from them either. (laughs) No, no, no. You never get an answer back from them. So, um, So like in terms of the institutional supply chain, the group purchasing organizations, um, it is very well documented. And if you look in the Wall Street Journal on the very last page today at the bottom, there's an article by two friends of mine, um, Phil Zweig, who's a journalist, and Frederick Blum, who's an emergency room doctor, and who introduced the resolution to the American College of Emergency Room Physicians uh, that they that they accepted to try to repeal the safe harbor for these legalized kickbacks. But um, these guys wrote a an article, and in the body of the article, they talk about this issue. Um, so over time, what the group purchasing organizations did was they started paying off the people in the hospital pretty much to keep quiet, if I may say so. So uh, and essentially what they said to the hospitals is, well, if you participate heavily in the group purchasing organization model, we're going to give you a share back. When you read today's article, what you'll discover, and we have this in print, is that there are people who admitted, admitted on paper, oh, yeah, well, we get a share back. And we can't give up that share back because as a hospital administrator, it covers, oh, you know, 50% of my um, salary. I see. So the share back is quite generous. So the group purchasing organization is giving a nice little payola to the hospital if they participate in the GPO model. So then it's a really hard time for anyone to get into the GPO market because, you know, they're not going to be able to get in. The hospital, it, it's kind of like the hospital is working in tandem with the GPO to keep everyone else out. And, you know, then you're talking about two institutions that have nothing to do with research and development, nothing to do with manufacture, and nothing even to do with distribution. But they have everything to do with, frankly, what looks to me like legalized bribes. Sure. But I mean. Wow, that's I guess that's harsh, isn't it? But I don't care. I'm a harsh person. We're you know, we're physicians, we get to say stuff like that and uh, you know, they don't listen to us oftentimes anyway. So uh all right. So basically your contention is that you're not that even if I was was to produce the hospitals are gonna keep me out because they're sort of 
probably some contractual agreement that we're not going to purchase outside your GPO for our supplies because correct you're not going to buy discounts unless you come th- get all your stuff through me. Yeah. Well, unless I don't provide that yeah. stuff, right? Now there are yeah. um, physician-owned hospitals who who try to go shop around and discover, wow. So like over time, initially the prices of working with the GPOs were not high, but then over time the prices started to escalate because you had shortages, sure. right? Yeah, right. And whenever you have a shortage, the price goes up, you know? Mm-hmm. So, oh, dear goodness, you know, there's, there's not enough manufacturers of saline. Well, oh, wow, the price goes up. That's just not a surprise. So um, there were physician-owned hospitals or surgery centers who said, oh, wow, this stuff is getting really expensive. Let me go directly to the distributor. And over time, what they found out is that the distributor was like running at 30% less. So when you like you take all this into consideration, what we what we believe is happening is roughly the cost of the supplies in all of the hospital supply chain of America are running 30% more than they should. And when you total all that up, plus the yeah, we haven't even totaled up the costs when you need to go under general anesthesia instead of um, local, or when uh, you have to jerry rig and give a more expensive medication because you don't have the cheaper one. But when you total everything up, we're talking in excess of two hundred billion billion with a B dollars per year that is caused by companies that have the legalized right to kickbacks which no institution should have. And these companies do no manufacture, no distribution, and no research and development. Well, dear God, what are they doing anyway? (laughs) Well, you know, that probably buys a lot of jet fuel for them. Um, So really you have, so you have this, and as it always is in these things, right? It's never quite as simple as, uh, you know, party X gives party Y some money and so they sell whatever. It's always like four or five different groups that are involved in this, uh, that benefit from this, right? Uh, we notice it with maintenance certification. It's the same sort of process. It's not just the boards that are that are making a bunch of money, but also membership societies. And there are other people who get the, Federal, the Federation of State Medical Boards. Everyone kind of gets their cut or has some sort of revenue stream that's dependent on this. And so they're all sort of in collusion on some level. This is a little bit more, exp- uh, more I guess... Uh, direct in some ways, right? So you have, so to sum it up, you have pharmaceutical companies or producers of medications or in supplies that are forced to go through GPOs because these group purchasing organizations, and we'll say pharmacy benefit managers are pretty much the same thing, right? Because I'm sure they do have the same sort of deal set up with pharmacies. It's not probably any different. Um, and so that they have to pay to to be participate, which limits the amount of people who can actually successfully uh, work within that market. Those GPOs then charge, uh, they have some arrangement with these, the people who receive the end products, whether that's a pharmacy or a hospital. And so they say, we'll give you this much as long as you promise you get everything through us. We promise to keep costs low, although we know by their nature and sort of the way everything's worked out, it ends up costs are higher. And now insurance companies get rebates, so they have less incentive to keep costs low. And quite frankly, as long as everybody's doing it, if everyone's price goes up, it doesn't, there's no, it doesn't matter, right? So they, there's no one who's going to undercut them from an insurance market anyway. Uh, and there's not as many insurance providers either. And so you have this sort of weird, there are like four people who are benefiting from this. And now I'm going to make a wild guess, and I don't even know if this is true. I have no idea if this is true, but I'm going to guess these GPOs more than managing the, more than just managing these, uh, these purchasing product, uh, 
contracts also have some hand in manufacturers of medications too. I mean, or, or the distribution process where they like the people who like ship at places and stuff like that warehouses. And so they would probably benefit in some ways from jacked up prices too. Is that, I mean, is that, or is that impossible to know? Oh, the PBMs? Oh, absolutely. The PBMs actually get paid as a percentage of the cost of the medication. Oh. <laughs> so like the higher the cost of the medication, the more they get paid. I know it looks like really awful, right? right. And then in addition, I believe the um, distributors do as well. And then there's like preferred contracts through the distributors. And like the big distributors are uh, Cardinal, McKesson, and um, oh gosh, there's a third one. Is it Mallinckrodt? Right is that now. the other like, one I'm trying me- to think of? Uh, no, well, Mellencrot is a, a yeah, manufacturer. Bard is another one that I see always. It, well, this, all you need yeah, to do is go look sure. up the biggest healthcare companies in the world and you can find them. Uh, it's sad. It's really sad. Cardinal. So Cardinal, um, Benton Dixon, uh, Amerisource Bergen, um, and McKesson. McKesson, Cardinal, Amer- Amerisource Bergen are the big distributors. So, and I believe they make a profit off of the percentage of the cost of everything. So like I'm looking right now, um, fortune magazine, the 10 biggest healthcare companies in the fortune 500, um, CVS Caremark is number one and they're a PBM. McKesson is number two and they're a distributor for the PBMs and the GPOs, uh, United health group. Uh-huh. Well, they're an insurance company. <laughs> great, great shakes there. Amerisource Bergen and they're a yeah. distributor. Uh, that's number four. Express Scripts, number five, they're a PBM. Um, Cardinal Health, number six, they're a distributor. So, like, the distributors work directly with them and they have, like, you know, private source contracts as well. Uh, I don't understand what Walgreens Boots Alliance is. Sounds like a shoe company, yeah. Because there's just too many things rattling around in my head. Johnson Johnson comes next, right? Anthem is number nine, and uh, Etnum is number 10. And then, of course, when you like consider, you're looking at all those companies, and um, now like those things are rattling around in your head, and you realize that, oh dear goodness, Aetna number ten is trying to merge with CVS Caremark number one. Well, you know that should be a concern for everyone, right? And then Express Scripts, which is I think number two or three, well, they want to merge with Cigna, and I don't know if they're on the list, but they're probably like eleven or twelve or something. Um, and you know, it, it's it's frightening. Like these, these companies have so much control and so much power. And when you think about companies that, you know, I just got over telling you no R and D, no manufacturing, no distribution, they just write contracts and they have that much power. Well, you can guess what they do with their money. I mean, wow. You can look in 2017 on express scripts on, um, I call it uh, open secrets. It's the the place where you discover where all the money goes into Congress. Express Scripts in 2017 donated almost $3 million. And it was not an election year. It wasn't even a midterm election year. Almost $3 million, single company. Shocking. So so you have decided to, you think we're going to pick on some of the weakest players in in, uh, affecting legislation. We're going to take on uh, these group purchasing organizations, the pharmacy benefit managers, we're going to take on the insurance companies and the hospital association, all the people who benefit from these these practices, right? Because I think you know it's fair to say that most hospitals they're more interested in making in staying solvent than they are in um, maybe the end product sometimes, right? So all these three organizations are concerned with their bottom line, 
and you decide to take all of them on in Congress because, you know, I'm sure you have a bank of, what, two or three billion dollars that you're going to draw upon to help lobby Congress. And um, <laughs> I wish you could see me. I'm like 105 pounds and like five one, if that. And yeah, you're 100 percent right. But have you ever seen the movie um, uh, Miracle on Ice? This is the thing where you can get a lot of outrage from people and who are upset. And and I think I've read so many articles up to, up to about two weeks ago before I even heard about you and this and these organizations. I consider myself fairly well informed. I'd never heard of this these these practices or problems. I was as puzzled and mystified by these shortages of medications. I mean, and as a physician in the trenches, you're not worrying about the complex inner workings of markets and healthcare. You just want your stuff. You need to take care of people, and uh, you're not. You might look one or two steps, but it, this is like you know, twelve steps down the road to figure out how we got to where we are. Right? Why does a hurricane in Puerto Rico, like we were saying before, why can you suddenly not have an IV fluids because of that? Uh, because that's a simple explanation, but it doesn't really explain you know why you got to that point initially. So, so it sounds like I mean now there seems to be some sort of nascent movement, I guess, against this. Or it, I mean, I mean, I heard about it, so it must it must be kind of percolating up. You mentioned the, the 60 Minutes episode on Sunday. Uh, there's, you said there are going to be a couple more coming. I've seen some articles on the Wall Street Journal and some Forbes and around about these organizations. And I mean, I know you've got some big things going on. So while I, this is probably a good time. Is this a good time to talk about what you got, got going on this week? I'm not sure when this episode comes out, but hopefully it'll be in the next day or so. Or is this not a good time to talk about? Oh, yeah. No, no, yeah. I so, I mean, I guess talk so, about uh, what what are you, Dr. Mary Mass? All 105 pounds of you, you're going to head to Washington, D.C. You know, you, you can't rough up too many of those guys. So what's your plan? <laughs> you know, like, so I, I think I started saying this, but um, I, I'm a big aficionado of that movie Miracle on Ice. You know, when the, the United States hockey team took on the Russians and like uh, one of my favorite speeches is when uh, Herb Brooks speaks to his team and he talks about how the Russians have controlled everything for for decades and he's tired of it. And he says, we're going to skate better than them. We're going to take them down because we can. And that's how I feel right now. I feel like, wow, why are these guys in charge of everything? This is insane. This is crazy. America is so tired. America is paying so much more for healthcare than they should. The middle class and the lower class is getting screwed because you know, if, if you if you look at healthcare from the 1970s until current, when you adjust for inflation, the cost of healthcare is up four times. But when you look at hospital costs, it's up ten times. And when you look at pharmaceutical costs, 140 times. So it seems to me there's some low hanging fruit there. And there's a lot of people who come along along and they will say, "Well, it's so complex. It's so multifactorial." I mean, can we just like get to some like essential essential truths here. I just explained to you what, uh, what was going on in terms of it, pharmaceutical pricing, 140 times increased since 1970. Let's give you some more indisputable facts. These GPOs and these PBMs don't do research, don't do development, don't make the product, and don't even distribute. They're the only industry in America with a get-out-of-jail-free card for taking kickbacks. 
So outside of Congress, you mean, right? Yeah. Well, yes, that, those two. And <laughs> there's 150 drugs and solutions in shortage, causing dangerous shortages, which are jacking up prices as well. And now when you take those situations, there's more physicians than ever that won't even talk about those shortages because we've gone from a situation where 30% of physicians were employed over you know 10 years ago, and now we have two-thirds of physicians employed. So when you're employed by a hospital, you're going to be like nervous about talking about the situation. So you're not even going to talk about the shortages that you see. There's fewer and fewer manufacturers of generic drugs. And when you look at who makes the most money in healthcare, it's all of these GPOs, these PBMs, and the people that they get together to do their distributing. So this is really pretty fishy as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Why are we allowing these people who are very fishy to have legalized rights to kickbacks? Why is no one looking at this? And then you go and you talk to Congress and they're kind of like almost quaking in their boots and they don't want to talk about it. And then you go and talk to the senators and they're even worse. And they're just like trying to divert you and pretend that you're some kind of stupid, silly little girl or something. And yeah. you know, like, you're kind of like, oh, dude, I got through med school and it was a good med school. <laughs> and what are you trying to pull over right. on me here? You know? Well, they know we're busy. So I, right. So we've been all busy, you know, working as physicians and we haven't realized this is going on. So what do we have going on? We have physicians who are now starting to get involved, interested, writing their congressmen, talking to their congressmen, talking to the medical societies. And we have physicians who are interested in writing. We've had three pieces come out in the last, uh, I think, two months. Um, the Washington Times, the uh, Harrisburg major newspaper, and now today, the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, that's big news. Yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, Tom Coburn mentioned this. And by the way, a former member of the Senate, uh, Dr. Coburn, knew all about this and really wanted it repealed as well, but recognized that it was very difficult to get done because so much money flows into the uh, coffers of Congress and especially the Senate. So um, what else we have going on is we have some meetings. Um, I'll be going to a Rose Garden meeting. The White House is going to be discussing lowering drug prices on Friday, and I'll be going to that. I can't believe I'm saying those words. That's pretty and cool. Addition, oh, it's very cool. I'm really shocked. <laughs> I'm meeting with one of the head healthcare aides on Monday um, to discuss the issue of of the uh, pharmaceutical benefit managers and the group purchasing organizations. I've been discussing the whole scenario with the Energy and Commerce Committee um, because we would really like to testify about this issue. They're kind of putting us off and putting us off and telling us the opioid crisis. We're worried about the opioid right. crisis. It's a huge right. issue. I, I don't disagree. Right. But, you know, so I say to them, well, well, there's $200 billion per year to be saved. I bet you could use that to help fund the opioid crisis issues. And by the way, did you know there's a crisis of Narcan, uh, naloxone, the medication that's used to pull you back from the brink when you have a an overdose? So overdose victims need their Narcan. And there's a shortage of that too. Did you know? Yeah. And they don't seem to know. So um, they're concerned about the opioid crisis and they can't look at the first thing that's helping to prevent deaths from the opioid crisis. So uh, all of these things are going on and we're continuing to work with large physician coalitions to try to pull more on board uh, to understand this issue. So it's building awareness right now. 
and I hope we can do so. Uh, 60 Minutes just aired a segment the other night that was, I call it a teaser. Uh, and 60 Minutes is going to be airing several other segments, hopefully in around August or September. Is They haven't given us a date, but they're talking to people that are dealing directly with the group purchasing organizations and the uh, pharmaceutical benefit managers. And so know what it's like to deal with them. And maybe they just might be spilling some secrets about that. And that's going to be very interesting for America. And I cannot understand for the life of me how any single lawmaker would be able to go to bed at night and fall asleep after what's going to come out in 60 minutes, or even now, quite frankly, but when it comes out in 60 minutes, doubly so. How they're going to be able to fall asleep at night when they know that they need to repeal a safe harbor for legalized kickbacks for these groups who have no real value in the American healthcare system in a segment of the healthcare system where the prices have gone up 140 times since 1970. Right. So I would first say that I'm very disappointed that physician incomes have not gone up 200 times as a pharmacy. So I think that's something we need to work on because when you're looking at the increased healthcare costs, it is not physician price it costs. It's not in nursing. It's, uh, you know, it's administrative and this sort of stuff, right? I mean, this is where the and pharmaceuticals and imaging and things. And, and the real opioid crisis in this country is the, is a lack that I don't have any, I can't, I can't treat people for with in pain after surgery. We have, we have very limited supplies and, we, and it's, uh, we're almost out of morphine. We were out of dilaud and now we got a little bit back, but it's, it's, it's insanity that I can't treat people in pain. I'm giving someone Tylenol after, after some surgeries. I, it's, uh, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't, it, it feels very much like it would have, would have been like in the 1800s, right? Where there's just, you know, there's not much you can do for someone to give them whiskey. I mean, if you were like we're getting close to that point. And I think it's, I think it's great that you're doing this. I personally, I always embark on, I feel like I'm not tilting at a windmill occasionally that I'm, that it's just, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. And, you know, these are, these are probably some of the most powerful forces you can go up against. I mean, outside of trying to stop Lockheed Martin from doing something, you're probably not going to find a bigger, uh, someone who's more powerful in, in Congress the fight, but I'm glad you're doing it. And I would, I mean, I hope, God, I hope you're successful or that you can start swaying some people and that you can convince people, convince those congressmen that that check from Express Scripts or wherever, this is not just about money for these, this is when eventually all of us are going to some, at some point interact with healthcare or someone we know very close to us. I mean, can you imagine being in hospice and not having access to adequate opioids? It's, uh, I mean, it, yeah, it's, no, I, I can't. I can't. Both of my parents have passed away from the from uh, you know yeah. Alzheimer's and congestive heart failure in the last four years. And I still remember my father telling me that he he was just done. He was tired and he he needed he was in such pain he needed the medication and and he was not the kind who took opioids. And you're right, we have shortages of those too. So you know, completely ridiculous. And we are we are in a situation where we're hurting patients. And, you know, you brought up, you said that it's crazy because physicians make such a low salary. I never argue to make more. Well, I don't, I don't want to, be, I don't want to make the contention, make a low salary. It just hasn't gone up 200 times like some oh, other parts. No, of no, no, right. But you know, like, look, I'm a pediatrician. I'm the bottom of the food chain for the salary. You are. I'm married to one. I know all about that. Yes. Oh, I bet you do. And I never <laughs> advocate to make more money. I just advocate that everyone else should be making less because Health uh, physicians are eight cents on the healthcare dollar, so there's 92 cents going out the window, 
and I know what my training was and I know what your training was. And, mm-hmm. you know, very few people can take out an appendix or diagnose a pneumonia or resuscitate a baby if they're dying. And, you know, those are the people we should be valuing the most. At least we should be not valuing everyone else so much. So, uh, I mean, I think, I think the important thing to state too, is that I, I do think all these things that, that people did, the distribution centers, the pharmaceutical companies, the chemists, the people writing contracts, these are all people who are important in the delivery of healthcare. I mean, these are things that make you more efficient as a healthcare system. You have to have the guys who know the legalese to get the contracts to make sure the deliveries show up on time and all that sort of stuff. And I don't think anyone here is, is making the contention that we need to eliminate these people or they need to you know be paupers. But I think, you know, the, the point is, you know, you have to recognize where you're actually getting value within the system. I mean, if you're no longer getting what you are contracting for, for instance, savings and supplies, then you have a question you're, the system. And if it's causing shortages that that limit the access for people to get sometimes life-saving medications or sometimes just mundane stuff, I mean, that's a real problem. And that's something that in a country as rich as we are, the richest in the world, without a doubt, we should not have trouble getting simple things like salt water. I mean, these these are... I joke sometimes that we're waiting for the for the um, the mission trip mission team from Rwanda to come and bring us supplies. But I think, and and probably I'm guessing that if we have shortages, it's probably even more tremendous shortages in other places of the world, right? Because as a country, we're probably willing to spend more money on this stuff. And so, if you're a supplier of stuff, you're willing to ship it from Europe or Africa back to the United States because you're going to get a bigger margin. And then those people are going to have even less than we have when you know they didn't have much to begin with, and they're going to have even less access than. Than, than we have in this country. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, like we're the, we're the beginning of the access. And like, so essentially what's happening with all of this is there's companies like, you know, it, it's well regarded. There's a woman I know who uh, works for the Hastings Institute and she uh, is, she's written a book. I have the book. I still have to read the book. I, I mean, I've spoken to her multiple times, Rosemary Gibson, and she's written a book called China RX, how China's just taking over the whole pharmaceutical market because it's just too easy. Like <laughs> we're, we're not making cheap, reasonable medications or even the uh, ingredients. And so China and India are making five of the 10 most important pharmaceutical ingredients or ingredients. If we have an attack from anthrax in our country, we're relying on China right now. It's frightening. Well, let's hope it's not China. <laughs> it is China. Well, I mean, it's right, true. China. Right. I mean, I guess in some ways, I'm glad. I mean, thank God someone's making it in the in the world. I mean, I'm I don't care where I get the medication from, as you know, as long as it's safe and and effective. But so I guess to wrap things up, um, so there are two different types of people listening to the show. There are physicians, and there are non physicians. I guess that's one way to separate the world, right? Uh, if you're a physician, where do you go to sort of learn more or get involved or you know write your congressman? How do you find out more about this stuff? And then what do you do if you're someone who is you know, a, a layman or someone who's not met in the medical field? How do you get involved and how do you do things to help? Well, um, there's a couple places you can look. You can go to a group called Physicians Against Drug Shortages. Um, they are the, the epicenter for this issue um, their stuff is mostly in chronological order, so it, it can, you know, it might be easier to go to other places. Um, Physicians Against Drug Shortages works with a group that I co-founded called Practicing Physicians of America. And when you go to them, you can look under their resources. And the resource page is something that I set up and you can kind of see there's a whole 
there's a whole web of information on there that comes from many different authors and many different groups, uh, not just uh, the issues with PBMs and GPOs and middlemen, but the hospitals and um, some of the other conflicted players in the whole thing. Um, so those are two really great places to go. Um, I think uh, looking at, start with the article, if you look up the Wall Street Journal, Phil's Zweig, uh, that will certainly pop up. It's the most recent. And then if you look up Penn Live, Marion Mass, or Bob Campbell, we wrote an article for that publication, and we also wrote one for the Washington Times. So if you look up that, those I think are three really good articles. We tried as hard as we could to make them understandable to the American public so that just the general population could understand it. And I don't mean to say that in any kind of a condescending way. It took me quite a while to pick this up myself because I think it's a very convoluted, confusing system. And I think the players that are trying to make it continue to make money for them are more interested in making sure that it stays confused they don't want it to come forward because if it comes forward and people understand what's going on, they're going to be like, oh, yeah. dear God, get rid of the safe harbor. And those people don't want that. Absolutely. So those are some locations that you could go to. So, Well, God bless you for your fight. Uh, on behalf of us in the trenches trying to deal with this and for my patients who need all this stuff, these medications, these supplies, I mean, it's a fight we need to win and we need to, and it's, it's one worth fighting. I, I am, um, I'm totally with you that we need to take care of this because if you don't, it's not, I certainly not going to get any better. And, and uh, we're just raising, adding costs and not getting any benefits for this. It seems to be a no brainer to fight this. Um, I'll add all these show notes uh, that all the things we um, discuss, the websites and contact information organizations will all be in the show notes page. And this, um, I want to thank you again for being on the show and be willing to, I know you're super busy, you're dynamo going to, going to DC and, Try to convince the Trump administration and a bunch of congressmen to look the other way when it comes to when they're getting these checks in their hand. So, best of luck again, and uh, I hope it we're successful. Oh, you're so kind. It's actually it's my pleasure. I'm I'm having a great time, and for any uh, for any physicians out there, especially the women physicians, I'll tell you that if you want to get really involved in a cause, it's a great way to lose weight because like you just forget. <laughs> involved in it. So it's my little diet tip for uh, the women out there who want to diet. And lastly, I'll just say that um, this is for everyone. And this is something that you can't own a cause. No one can own a cause. So there's many of us that have been involved for a long time. For me, it's just a year, but there's other people that have been involved for a decade, six years. Don't be afraid to climb on board. Find more. And if you look up Physicians Against Drug Shortages or Practicing Physicians of America, we're happy to help guide you, get you involved, um, get you on board. There's other causes that at PPA, especially, that we're part of, especially you mentioned maintenance and certification. It's a biggie, hospital consolidation, um, a biggie for us. But, you know, it, it makes no sense as a physician to sit down and keep quiet because. When we do that, then that's when we lose. And when you have to go back and look in your patient's eyes day after day and tell them that you can't give them what they need, despite the tremendous training that you have, that's embarrassing. And when it really hit home for me was when my mother received suboptimal care. I'm the only daughter in a family of five. And um, they just picked the wrong person to have that happen to. My mother is an extraordinary woman. 
she had twins at 43 and, you know, <laughs> saved her community, ran the drug prevention team and just did so many wonderful altruistic things. And they just messed with the wrong woman. You know, when they tried to, to humiliate my mom or not try to, but when they did, and I realized how broken the system was. That's when I started investigating it. And since then, it's been game on. And I really don't want anyone else's mother to suffer what my mother suffered, those indignities. And so um, it's kind of like one of those over my dead body type scenarios. And so I'll keep fighting. Well, thanks again. And I'm glad you're fighting for the good guys. It's so, pl- it's so nice talking to you and good luck in Washington and future endeavors. Thanks again for talking to me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. It's been pretty wild lately. Uh, And, you know, it's funny because I tell people all the time, the best part, if you wrote a book about me, would be that four years ago, I was a soccer mom that moonlit as a pediatrician. And now all of this stuff is happening. And that's really perfectly true. And I don't mean to say that to like belittle anything, but it, it a number of things happened that made me say one day uh, that I'm done, I'm finished, I'm tired, and it's time to really take on this system. And so I've morphed from a soccer mom who moon, moonlit to a full-time advocate without conflicts, not getting paid for what I'm doing and not caring at all and actually having a great time and feeling completely liberated because I'm just speaking out.